It ain't that simple, mate. Hello and welcome to It Ain't That Simple Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast where we are focused on missions and poverty and everything related to serving the poorest of the poor. Thanks for joining us here today and we have a uh, really special podcast for you. We have Rob Perdue who is the founder and chairman of Bright Hope World sharing uh, with us today a little bit of the origin story of Bright Hope World where we came from, how our uh, values were formed based on the things that Rob saw, and also uh, where some of the, the character and specifics and focus of Bright Hope World came from. So thanks for joining us here, Rob. Yeah, that's great to be here. Uh, Rob, let's go back to uh, your childhood, if, if we can delve that deep that far back. Um, what, what was that like? I mean, were you interested in missions? Were you interested in, in church? Where, where does... Bright Hope World find its earliest origins? Yeah, well, as a child, I went to a church that was very focused on missions. Every Tuesday night, we had a service that just read missionary letters, and we prayed for the missionaries. And then right through my childhood, I heard uh, really amazing missionary stories, um, read lots of missionary biographies, and we had lots of missionaries staying in our home. When I was a teenager, early teenager, um, we met a friend who started an organisation for short-term missions around the world, and uh, he took an interest in me, and he had me drive him around the South Island as he spoke about God's heart for the poor and disadvantaged, and it had a significant impact uh, on my thinking and on my future as it turned out. So, Rob, I'm curious about the, the people staying in your home when you were a kid. So these are missionaries you know, working in other parts of the world that are coming back and sharing their stories. Yeah, right. And so um, you get to hear their story officially at church, and then you get to meet them in, in reality when they're living in your home, and that's uh, quite enlightening. So you, you are connecting with this guy, you're driving around the South Island. What, what is that involving? He had lots to say. He was very, very excited about the opportunities and he felt that we were at the end of uh, time and he used to talk about being uh, one minute to 12 and we had an opportunity as people in New Zealand to reach the world for Jesus. And so he was trying to collect up our young people to go off and have a short-term mission somewhere in the world um, to share the gospel with people who'd never, ever heard. Now, I, I know a little bit about your story. I, I know that there is a short-term mission trip in there. I mean, certainly my uh, involvement in missions comes from uh, connection with a short-term mission trip back in 1995 in the, in the very distant past. How how was that for you? What, how did you get involved in doing a short-term mission trip, and what, were that, what was that experience uh, like? Yeah, well, in the late 60s, um, this man launched his first short-term mission trip, and it happened to be going to Fiji to work in inland Fiji with a village. And he was looking for 30 young people to go and share their holidays uh, with people and tell them about Jesus and help in a practical way in the village. So that's how I, I got invited. And what, what did you see? What were the what were the people like? What was the, the place like? And, and you know what sort of impression did doing that sort of work make on you? Well, it was my first overseas trip at 20 years of age, and what I saw staggered me. 
um, these young Fijian and Indian girls and guys just amazingly equipped, very energised to assist and to evangelise their communities and we were blown away. Um, they understood their community, they understood their culture far better than we did. We were meant to be the experts but in reality um, they just left us for dead. And, and what did you see? You've told stories before about the impact it made in terms of where the money was going. Talk us through that. What, what did you see that laid that uh, kind of ethic on your heart about using money for missions? Yeah, well, as I said, I was just blown away by their ability and zeal. And I came home thinking, something not right with this picture. These guys had no resources. It seemed to take so little to make a difference. There was too much money going into the overheads of the organisations trying to help them. The focus seemed to be totally on the donor rather than on the recipient. And the gospel and helping the poor seemed to me to be inseparable. And I came home realising I needed to be involved in mission. Okay, so you're then listing off some things there which sound um, suspiciously similar to the bright world values that we uh, operate under now. Is that kind of where the idea of doing missions a little bit differently comes from? I really do think that was where the seed was planted and the values that we still hold today um, were formatted in my mind as to the future. So what are you doing in life at this point? Um, you, you're, you're married by this stage? How are how we when you met the lovely uh, Heather? Um, well, within a year of that experience, I was married um, and my wife, along with six other couples, began a new church in an unchurched area of our city of Christchurch. Um, and then we went on to have our family. And so it was a very formative time uh, in my experience. And you, you were involved in finance, insurance at this point? You, what, what, what's your career? Yeah, so, so we were very busy in the church life. And uh, at that point in time, I was um, managing an insurance company. Uh, and so very busy in my uh, work life. And um, yeah, just, just had a lot going on in my life at that point. But you're, you're pretty involved in church. You're involved in a church plant. Where's, where's the sort of mission's heart sitting at this point in time? Well, that, that was really the point. Um, I was very involved in the church and in the leadership, and I was in my early 20s and um, had a huge amount going on, but in the back of my mind, I couldn't get away from the fact that I felt God was reminding me of the promise I made to him to get involved with the poor and disadvantaged. And so I got involved in different ministries. The one that the guy I referred to earlier was leading. Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot going on in my life in mission. So had you uh, you know, been overseas uh, a- again at this point, or are you still sort of you know, really focused on the church in, in New Zealand? And, you know, I suppose at the same time, how was the church in New Zealand doing in terms of missions during this period? Was this a, a missions-focused period or, you know, what was going on? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, I wasn't able to go overseas at that point. We had a young family. As I said, I had a huge amount going on um, in my own life in the church. And so, no, I didn't get to go away, but... Um, 
I was involved in helping to send teams of young people uh, to many parts of the world on a short-term mission. And at, at that stage, uh, you you said as as uh, you know, just before you have a young family, you're heavily involved in church. You're you're doing a sort of an active, you know, financial career. You're, you're pretty busy. How then does you know? How do you go from that stage of life where it's frantic and, and a lot of us are in, still in that stage of life? to thinking about starting a ministry and, and extending a hand into the developing world. That seems like a huge ask at that stage of life. Uh, that's true. And at 36, um, I felt God was calling me out of my secular job to become involved in Christian ministry. Huge step for me. Um, went home and said to my wife, Heather, uh, I really do think that God is leading me into uh, the step, and she said, well, I've been ready for a year wondering uh, where you're at. Right, it's so often the case, isn't it, that the, the wives are ready before we are. It is. And so that came as a, as a big shock to me, and um, quite, quite honestly, it was uh, a big step both in my church and in my family. People just couldn't understand how I would give up a very good job to step out in faith to do what I felt God was calling me to do quite difficult really so so where do you start i mean you, you've got that you know missions grounding from you know as a kid you've been as a young man uh, into the mission field and you've seen some things that have made uh, what sounds like a pretty strong impression you've you've formed based on that observation and experience some mission values and then god lays a call on your heart where do you go from there yeah well that's a a very good question and rightly or wrongly we felt that we didn't want to ever ask anyone for money and so we went into this uh, knowing that we were totally trusting god as a young child i'd been very interested in the story of george muller i don't know if you know but he was a um a gentleman who totally trusted God to help orphans uh, in England. And over a a period of time, he raised vast amounts of money by telling the story of what God was doing with the orphans. That really rang true with me. And interestingly today, we now partner with that ministry and they, they support orphans in Africa through Bright Hope World. That's the George Mueller Charitable Trust, right? The George Mueller Charitable Trust. So we, we decided we didn't want to um, tell people uh, that we needed finance. We wanted to tell God. And today, ever since, we have done the same thing. We love to share the story of what Bright Hope is doing uh, or what God is doing through Bright Hope in the world. But we never ask for money. And uh, we're just trusting God that he will lay on people's hearts a burden for the poor and disadvantaged, which in fact has happened over the last 30 years. So to get back to your question, um, I left my employment and I started a ministry training young men to lead teams in mission. It was a one-year leadership course, which ran for four years. And then I moved on to a new role as the director of a mission radio production ministry called Christian Resource Centre, where we made radio programs for mission stations around the world. Although I really enjoyed that, I was not doing what I felt God called me to do, which is to work with in partnership with the poor and disadvantaged. And so in the early 90s, 
we based ourselves in the US and started to get really involved uh, around the world in partnership with the poor and disadvantaged. Okay, so the, you've still got a relatively young family. You're you're relocating to the states and and pursuing ministry. I mean, what, what was this like as an experience? I mean. It, was it a, a particularly difficult time? I mean, was it a good time for the family? I mean, it, it seems like you know massive change at that um, sort of point in your lives. How was it? How how did Heather feel about it? Well, it was uh, it was a really big step for both of us. Um, we knew that's what God wanted us to do, or we felt we knew that's what God wanted us to do, and so we did it. Heather's a city girl. And we were suddenly uh, backpacking around the world. I found it extremely exciting. We saw numerous miracles almost daily. And we were both just excited by what God was doing. So you're in the States. You're you're sort of starting laying the groundwork for the ministry. Talk us through the process where, through which Bright Hope World starts to solidify in your mind. So initially we... Uh, we're working with a, a couple who really believed in what we were wanting to achieve. And um, we were working in their business to create some funds to be able to go and do what we wanted to do. We'd had 25 years of contacts in the world of missions. So I had contacts all over the world. And our plan was to go and visit these people, see what they were doing with indigenous people and the poor and then start building a ministry from there. Okay, so you, you're launching out, you're going to visit these people. That's that's pretty intrepid. Had, had you been to these places before that you were visiting? No, we had never been to any of the places that we ended up going to. Um, so it was a huge step. Wow. So talk us through that that first trip. What time period in here? We're in the late 80s at this point. Is that right? Uh, early 90s. Early 90s. So, you know, what's happening in the world and, and what are you going out as you, you traipse around? What are you going out? What are you seeing? And, uh, you know, who who really made an impression on you? Yeah, well, that, that's a really good question because a lot was going on in Eastern Europe. Uh, communism had just fallen over and we'd been praying about where we should start, and uh, we felt God was telling us we should start in Eastern Europe. And so on our first trip, we set off with just backpacks, and um, we went through Bulgaria, into Romania, into Yugoslavia, onto Macedonia and Albania and Russia. And um, it was a baptism by fire. We'd never been to any of those countries, and we were just seeking God's direction every day as to who we would see and how we would uh, handle ourselves. So you're just shaking hands, you're meeting people, you're hearing their stories, you're getting to know them, you're you're building relationship. That's, that's how you're uh, initiating all of this. Yes, we had a network of people whom we did know, and then they would introduce us to people we didn't know. And in a miraculous way, really, God brought us into situations that were extremely needy. And so we just did whatever we felt God was telling us to do day by day. And so what was life like, you know, for the people there? Uh, You know, it's a disruptive time in the world. All these regimes are toppling. Uh, You know, what did life look like? What did you find? Yeah, life was really chaotic um, when we got to Romania. 
Uh, they'd been uh, used to a very repressive leadership and now they had their, their freedoms but they didn't know how to handle it and um, the church was struggling to know how to control the growth that was happening. There were huge opportunities in terms of helping people to help themselves and so Romania itself was a very interesting challenge. And then it got progressively worse as we got into Yugoslavia that was in the middle of a Bosnian-Serbian war. And um, unbelievable, actually, what we, we saw and had to deal with. And then no better in, in Macedonia or Albania. As for Russia, it was, um, it was just a massive challenge for the church. And so we were in the middle of all that. Was the church under considerable opposition at that time? Uh, no, the church had come out of um, huge opposition. It was it was floundering to know quite where to go and what to do. And so we were uh, in a very challenging time in the history of the church in, in the whole of Eastern Europe. And e- economically, you know, did, were you meeting people that were struggling to put food on the table? Economically, it was disastrous, really, in most of those countries. Um, They'd relied on the state and uh, then suddenly the state had stepped back and so they didn't they didn't know how to think for themselves anymore and so it was interesting to see this dependency that they had been under for 70 years suddenly fall away. And so what did you do? I mean, you know, you can't uh, start a situation where you're just sending people food or, or those sort of things. So, you know, how did those sort of early partnerships start? What kinds of things were you suggesting or, you know, discussing with them that, that they could look at doing? Oh, well, that's a really good question and a very big question because it, it changed from country to country. But if you think about Yugoslavia, here we are facing people who are middle-aged. Uh, they've they've loved and got on with their neighbours and suddenly they were at war with them. Their houses were being burnt down. Um, they'd had good jobs. We met bank managers, headmasters, uh, all manner of professional people who now had nothing. And so we had to think very rapidly, how can we do something to help here? And... Um, what had been formulated in my mind way back from the Fiji days was we need to help people to help themselves. We don't, we, we don't want to do the handout thing. We want to actually give them a hand up. And so we started creating little micro-enterprises with bank managers. I remember one bank manager we met in uh, Belgrade, Yugoslavia. Uh, he had a few square metres at the back of his uh, little shack and so we bought him some pigs, and he started a little piggery. The, the, the neighbour too along was a headmaster. We bought a whole lot of chickens and uh, created a, an egg farm. Down the road was a guy who uh, had a chainsaw, and so um, we helped him buy a second chainsaw, and uh, he had a firewood business um, because everyone was cold. They had nothing. Um, and then the were... The, the largest church in Belgrade um, had a ministry that was getting these people into the church, sitting them down, talking to them about their needs and giving them food. And we started helping support those people. Heather and I got to speak to 300 of these refugees one day, just sharing the gospel with them. They'd never heard it before, but they suddenly wanted to hear because here's somebody who was helping them in their desperate need. 
we got some of those refugees together and we got them painting cards. And over the next few years, they painted thousands of cards, beautiful paintings, and we sold them in the US to fund their livelihood. They were some of the things that we did in Yugoslavia. Okay, we're going to take a uh, little break there and then uh, come back and and hear how Rob and and Heather then go on to uh, Africa and and Asia and and, uh, South America and some of the other places that uh, Bright Hope World is uh, involved with still today. And, uh, and also how uh, Rob and Heather built an organisation from this uh, initial trip. We will be uh, right back in just a moment. It Ain't That Simple Mate is brought to you by Lamai Coffee. Lamai Coffee is the finest quality organic Arabica coffee from the northern hills of Thailand. We at Bright Hope World import the green beans into New Zealand and we roast them to perfection, then sell them to discerning coffee drinkers. We're all volunteers on the team, so all the profits go back into great community projects in Thailand, and that is why we call it the world's best-tasting act of kindness. You can order Lamai coffee or find out more at lamai.co.nz. It Ain't That Simple, Mate. Welcome back to It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast, where we are here with Bright Hope World founder and chairman, Rob Perdue. Just going back in time a little bit and hearing uh, some of the story of how he got involved in missions and, and really the the genesis, the origins of Bright Hope World. Now, when we um, uh, left at the the break, Rob was talking about uh, his first sojourn in the early 90s with uh, his wife Heather into uh, Eastern Europe. Now, Rob, from Eastern Europe, the uh, the the trip, the ventures turned uh, further south into um, South America. Talk about that. What did you see in South America? How was it different to Eastern Europe? And and uh, how did you know? How did you approach it? What what happened next? Yeah, well, it was it was pretty unknown again, and so we headed into Central America, um, and went to um, countries where we had obviously never been and knew very little about, but we had contacts. Went to an orphanage there and um, visited with them, helped them set up a little furniture factory to become self-supporting. What country was that in? That was in Guatemala, and it, it was a fun time. We uh, we met four little girls in the orphanage whose parents had just been killed, and um, they were very keen for us to adopt one of their little girls, and Heather was very keen that that should happen. You, you weren't so keen, Rob? I knew that was going to be the end of Bright Hope World if we uh, adopted a little girl, and it was a very hard uh, decision for her. They, they were doing coffee and uh, there was a boy there called Robert and he just kept following me around. And so we, we had a really sort of precious time with those guys in Guatemala. Then we went to Mexico City uh, and worked for a week with um, children on drugs and uh, glue sniffers and they used to live under the, under the road and we had a, a week with them and... It was heartbreaking, but it, it just reassured us that God was showing us the sort of people that he wanted us to be involved in. And we look back on that time as something that was 
quite key in directing our, our thoughts for the future. Then we went down to uh, Peru, and in Peru we we stayed with another contact, and they wanted to take us into the Amazon jungle to a tribe of about 40,000 people who really knew very little about, about Christianity. So that was a 12-hour bus ride over the Andes, and uh, yeah, it was, it, it was something different. So after 12 hours on the bus and five hours on the back of a truck, we then had to walk an hour into the jungle to, to meet this tribe. It was very different to anything I'd ever done and certainly anything Heather had ever done. So we had uh, several days there and um, the first night when we arrived, they served a delicacy um, for dinner that night. And uh, Heather asked the missionary who'd taken us, so what is this? And he said, it's a delicacy. And after several questions and uh, him not appreciating the question, questioning, uh, we found out that it in fact was what they call a jungle rat. And it was um, pretty tough. Uh, Heather decided she couldn't eat it, so I had to eat hers as well. And uh, that was a bit of a challenge. And then we slept on a platform above the ground because the jaguars come down at night and uh, obviously there's no bathroom, so it was a bit of a challenge. These are some of the challenges of being out in the mission field. These are. But after three days there, um, staying with his family, we uh, we felt we could do something, and um, as a result of that visit, we uh, we had fish farms put in there, and we set up a rat farm, and they used to sell the rats to the restaurants out on the edge of the forest. To, to be clear... The restaurants were serving uh, rat to people who knew they were eating rat. This isn't some sort of pretending it's chicken kind of deal. No, no, this is this is a delicacy in that part of the world. A, del- a delicacy. That word is always a red flag in these parts of the world. That's true. So we also got involved in uh, sustainable management of the forest because they kept tr- cutting down the forest, beautiful timber, uh, to plant maize and corn. And so we uh, set up a a sustained management uh, uh, program there. And as a result of all that, we understand that 20,000 of the tribe came to know Jesus and uh, it's a thriving uh, area now. So you've been to Eastern Europe, you've um, been in South America. Uh, At what point do you sort of draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I'm going to start this thing called Bright Hope World and and you know look at other parts of the world is this has this happened yet or is this still in the future this is still in the future and really didn't occur until we returned to new zealand and thought now how are we going to put this together in a meaningful way initially um it was just heather and i doing what we believe god has, had called us to do but it became very evident very quickly that there was massive opportunity here way beyond our um, time and ability. At this stage, you are also starting to look. I know at at Africa, and um, and potentially at growing the team and getting others involved. Talk about your your entry, your for entry into um, Africa, and also uh, meeting up with Kevin Honore. Yeah, well, um, as we looked around the world, we we uh, we knew that Africa was a hugely needy part of the world, and um, we also had been friendly with uh, Kevin and Helen for many years, 
because uh, we'd had involvement with them in another ministry prior to all this. And he was the obvious choice to uh, invite to come with us to Africa. So we went to South Africa, bought ourselves a vehicle and started travelling up through Africa. Our son Jared came with us. And so in 1998, we did our first trip through Southern Africa with the honorees. And what, what did you see there? It, was it markedly different from what you were seeing in South America? What, what sort of problems were the people uh, facing? Yeah, I think probably the poverty was worse in Africa than we'd seen in South America, and definitely their ability to do something about it was um, was restricted compared to South South America. Not only that, but AIDS had started to take a big hold in Africa, and it became very obvious um, as we got into Africa that there was a massive need with um, orphans and and the poor, and so. Probably this third night we were there, um, we were sitting um, talking and uh, the people who were running the guest house said, there's a lady come here to see you. Now we had no appointments and so we looked at each other and thought, who could that be? And this young woman introduced herself to us and told us that her what her name was and that she had heard that we were interested in helping orphans. And this was a really interesting time. And so it turned out she was in her 20s and she had adopted 350 AIDS orphans and wondered if we'd be interested in helping her to uh, adopt a whole lot more. So this is this is a single woman in her early 20s that's adopted 350 young children with eight. No, she just got married, but yeah, she, uh, she when her husband proposed to her, she said, I'll need to tell you the answer next Monday and he said oh well why is that and she said well I'll tell you next Monday and so when he met her and said well will you marry me she said well I will but I need to tell you I have 350 children that I take care of. That's quite a prospect. It is. He's a brave man. So we went on we went on to work with her and uh, we grew that number to 2,000 orphans um, and it was a, a very interesting start to our ministry in, in Africa. So, Rob, in the history of Bright Hope World, as you were finding these people uh, around the world, and, and I know back then and still it's very much a case of um, God-ordained appointments, I think is the phrase you've used before. Did you ever get it wrong? Did you ever meet people who weren't quite right? Did did uh, you know, did any of those partnerships really go off the rails, you know, in that time? Well, I wouldn't want to take any of the glory for this, but I believe that God has really kept us from making calls that are wrong. We've had to learn an awful lot, um, and I believe that we have learned quite a lot, but we've been very careful before we ever partnered with people. Um, we want to check them out really thoroughly. We don't want to tell them how to run their ministry. We want to see people that God has really blessed but could do a whole lot more with the right resources. And so there have been times when we've thought this would be a good idea, but he has not confirmed that. Uh, there have been times when what we thought would happen didn't happen. 
But generally speaking, I have to say uh, thanks be to God that we have been very blessed by our partnerships. Yeah, that is an extraordinary legacy uh, over 30 years to uh, to be able to say that. It is. So, Rob, you, you start uh, with these partnerships, and I know there, there was a bit of a donor base uh, in the U.S. at this point. Uh, you're also growing relationships uh, with the church in New Zealand that are starting to support some of this work, seeing its impact, seeing its effectiveness, uh, both in terms of alleviating poverty as well as you know seeing the gospel be put into the hands of people who haven't had access to it. Uh, this is starting to get pretty intense in terms of workload, I imagine. At what point do you decide you're going to build an organisation, you're going to build a team? How does that happen? I asked the church that I attended if I could have a room in their church to to run Bright Hope out of, which they agreed to. And then um, it's, it started getting even bigger, and so I got somebody um, to help me in terms of the secretarial side, that was Mark Daniel, and um, I went off and rented a little bit of space. I never intended for Bright Hope to be anything other than the calling Heather and I felt we had. Um, We thought that would be what we did, Um, but I think God had other ideas, and so we just couldn't cope with the demands that were starting to come in and so we had to start growing the team. Um, it's a whole lot easier to do something yourself than than uh, get a lot of other people involved. So that took time and organisation. But again, God has been incredibly faithful in terms of the growth of this ministry. You know, we're, we're at the point now where we have 25-plus oh, people on the team. And, and for those who haven't listened to uh, earlier podcasts, uh, none of these people are... Uh, paid to be part of Bright Hope World. Quite a few of them give a fair amount of their time and and when they travel to Africa or the Middle East or Asia or South America, they do so at their own expense. How on earth do you recruit people with a a, a wage and salary and and benefits package that looks like that? How how have you built a team of people who, um, who don't get paid to do what they do? Yeah, well, that's an incredibly good question. And I don't know that I know the answer to that other than the people who have joined us right from day one are people who are passionate about God. They're passionate about serving the poor. And um, they see it as an, as an integral part of their personal ministry uh, for God. And so um, it's just a standard that we set for ourselves that, that we believe um, others share. And... Um, you know, you just don't see people on the Bright Hope team who aren't excited about what God's doing and what God can do, and that makes for an incredibly amazing team of people. As you look back at, at all those uh, hundreds of people that we've partnered with in dozens of countries, what really sticks out to you about what makes partnership with people in the majority world work? What are the real lessons that God has laid on your heart about how to get alongside local people and empower them to reach their communities? Yeah, well, that's that's a huge question. And um, and I guess if you'd asked me that 25 years ago, the answers would be different to what they are now. But I, I really feel that um, one of the huge benefits of Bright Hope World 
is that we feel that we are servants to our partners. We we don't have any demands uh, on our partners other than integrity. Um, we want to partner with people that God is really working through, um, but we don't want to tell them what to do. We want to be able to serve them by helping them with what they do. You'll never see uh, anyone in our, in our partnership which partnerships, which are over 200 now, um, calling themselves part of Bright Hope. Um, they don't work for us. They, they have a relationship with God that we see, we value, and we want to be part of. So we are a serving ministry. Um, it, it, it really excites us to see what God is doing through our partners. There's lots of things at times that we would like to uh, say, but um, it's it's their ministry, and we uh, identify generally with with what they're doing. We often, like in any partnership with your wife, um, for instance, you might have uh, suggestions that um, things could could work a different way, uh, which sometimes are, are taken how they're meant to, and other times they're not. And so we're careful what we do say to our partners, but we value them, and we value what God is doing through them. And that doesn't mean to say that we're not interested in accountability. We are. We all need to be accountable. And so if we give funds for a particular thing, we believe that if these people are people of integrity, which they are, they will use those funds appropriately. So, Rob, as, as Bright Hope World has grown and the, the team has expanded and, and rather than um, the decisions being made by you and Kev out on, on a boat, as, as it was for many years, there's an executive now, you know, there, there are substantial changes uh, and, and a team around that will make sure Bright Hope World continues to function for many, many years to come. What is your hope for Bright Hope World in the future? Where do you want to see it go um, what's really important to you that is uh, retained? Um, and are you hopeful about the future of, of Bright Hope World partnering with the poorest of the poor? Uh, when I was 60, I went to the board and said, look, I'm um, not able to continue to do this forever. You know, maybe it's time to to uh, just say that that was a job we've done to the best of our ability and stop. And the board assured me that that shouldn't happen and that we should build on what we've learned and what we've done. And so I personally went to look for uh, someone who um, could take over my role, and I found you. And, um, and I believe that, that 10 years ago when we, when we made that decision, that God honoured that, and we have got now a team that is um, of very high integrity, of huge energy, and uh, I think Bright Hope's future looks uh, exceedingly good um, from many aspects, including uh, the, 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 the team. And it, just as a, as a final word before we close, what, uh, what is your biggest piece of advice for, for me and for the rest of the team taking this into the future? What, what do we need to remember in order to um, make sure we stay aligned with God and mission? The minute we think this is our ministry, I think we've failed. I think we have to see that this ministry is ordained of God, um, that what we're doing is very different to what most people do, but it has values that 
are extremely high and uh, as long as we keep uh, God as our focus, I believe we can continue to grow this ministry and help millions more people in the future. Amen to that. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for sharing uh, some of your story. I know there's a lot of people uh, around the world that would be very keen to hear this and will be blessed uh, by your faithfulness and, and energy and enthusiasm and, and uh, godliness in, in making all this uh, work. Uh, you have been listening to It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast. If you have any questions, comments, uh, feedback, or even suggestions of things you'd love to hear us talk about, please do email those to podcast at brighthopeworld.com. But for now, I am Fraser Scott. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to joining you again on the next episode of It Ain't That Simple, Mate. Mm